0: You're listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast, brought to you by Vespa. Hi, welcome to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast. I'm your host, Peter Defty, and we're here today with Dr. Beverly Teeter. Hi, Bev. Um, How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Now, um, I really kind of want to put this ball in your sphere because um, it's kind of informal, but... I would like to start off with you telling us about your work and your institute and what you're doing, Then we're going to focus in on your uh, blood platelet work uh, and explain more about that. But let's start with who you are, what your institute is, and what you're doing.
1: I'm a biophysicist by training. I earned my doctorate at University of California at Berkeley back in 1979, and I've been involved in shall I say holistic integrative health uh, and energy medicine and a number of different topics for research. One of those areas is nutrition and live blood analysis, looking at the blood, the native blood taken right out of the fingertip or the toe under a microscope and looking at it for uh, many qualitative factors. And that sort of test is really complementary to the typical medical tests that one gets for um, a blood serum and blood count, the quantitative testing of conventional medicine. So, uh, I've done some research with this test, and that's what we're going to speak about today.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure your biophysicist background really makes you particularly qualified to understand what you do, because you're not just looking at what's in the blood; it's how the blood is reacting, and and you know, one of the things that I've been talking to one of my friends, Mike Julian, about, we're talking about the whole electron gradient in, in terms of energy synthesis for power. Um, and so I'm sure that this is, that, that's something tangential, but I'm sure your biophysicist background really qualifies you for what we're going to be talking about today. And where's your institute? It's in Oakland or, or Berkeley?
1: Um Actually, it's in Emeryville, which is a small town between Oakland and Berkeley in the mm-hmm. San Francisco Bay Area.
0: Are you there in the Claremont District?
1: Uh, no, Emeryville is close to the Bay Bridge.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, I know where Emeryville is, but I, you know how Berkeley sort of fingers out and then Oakland fingers in, and it kind of goes, goes all around Berkeley and kind of pushes out, uh, I mean, Emeryville and pushes it kind of out towards the bay? Yeah. Well, very good. And have you been located in the Bay Area for uh, most of your life since earning your doctorate?
1: Well, on and off, because I had a position at Temple University for almost 10 years. Uh, That took me to Philadelphia. After that, I came back and founded my own nonprofit laboratory, Institute for Frontier Science. So I've been here for the last 21 years.
0: Oh, wonderful. Okay, so... um, I you know as a western price member I received the journals and I've been following your work and and, and really interested in it and um uh, let's start by talking about this blood is it blood platelet looking at live blood and the blood platelet thing because you're looking at whole a couple of different aspects that are just fascinating in terms of both nutrition and then uh, non native emf correct
1: yes uh, the word platelet however we must use it cautiously because that's a different cell type in the blood I'm actually looking in particular at the red blood cells, which are the most numerous cells in blood. They're round cells uh, that carry oxygen and waste products uh, to and from all the organs and tissues. And it's very important that the blood be relatively low viscosity with the red blood cells separated from one another so that the blood can flow best in all of the microcapillaries and nourish all of our tissues.
0: Oh, wow, Now this is getting interesting. This is great. And um, so describe what you're doing in the, in the process so the audience can get kind of an of a overview of the, the actual hands-on process.
1: I'm taking a look at what is called in holistic medicine the biological terrain or the soil of the body. Uh, we all know that if the soil is bad, plants don't grow very well. And similarly, if our blood is not ideal, we're not going to replenish and rejuvenate ourselves very well either. So I'm taking a look at the terrain of the body, the blood, its pH, and its qualitative appearance under the microscope and also following over time. How sturdy is that blood? Does it hold up or does it fall apart?
0: Wow. Wow. Okay. So interesting. And you're also looking at the pH or or the pH range, right? Because blood probably ideally has to exist in a pretty narrow pH band, correct?
1: Yes. Blood should be between pH 7.2 and 7.4, slightly alkaline. And what's challenging is that all of the food that we burn is making acid in the form of carbon dioxide, which forms a weak acid, carbonic carbonic acid, and so the body has to eliminate carbon dioxide or we get acidic, which makes us tired and um, unable to function.
0: Okay. And what helps us to do that? Besides, you know, having good blood and, and obviously your work is probably showing that this is an implication, but does exercise, uh, what are other things that can work to eliminate excess, quote unquote excess? Because it's, it's just A couple
1: like- of things. Yeah. Um, eating high levels of quality vegetables, organic, uh, five to eight servings of different vegetables per day. Think colors and eat white, yellow, orange, red, green, all of those colors to really nourish yourself and get alkaline. And the second thing would be to be drinking alkaline water. And there are devices called ionizers that one can use to boost the alkalinity of your whole system.
0: Oh, That's wonderful. Okay. So, um, you know, in the last few years, you've published a couple of things in the Western Price Journal, but I'm sure you're publishing elsewhere and, and looking at things. So why don't we go into that? And I think the first thing that caught my eye was your work with uh, uh, ruminant versus non-ruminant meat sources. And then, of course, with the non-ruminant meat sources, you were also looking at cured versus uncured meat. Would you like to just go in and just free flow with this? Because I'm just going to get in the way.
1: Well, it's very important that we eat uh, animals that, first of all, are pastured versus being kept up, cooped up in the barn or in a food trough eating corn and soy because the fat composition of those animals is vastly different. The animals fed corn and soy and sitting in a barn or a food trough have a high amount of omega-6 fatty acid. And we need that in our diet, but we also need the perfect balance of omega-3, omega-6, and omega-9 fatty acids. And we can only get that really from pastured animals. Animals who are put out and eating um, grass and weeds that are appropriate, that are their natural diet, and not fed corn and soy. And when we eat those pastured animals, we get the perfect balance of omega-3, 6, and 9. and We turn from a pro-inflammatory diet, which is too much omega-6, to a healthy diet, which is that perfect balance. And we reduce our own biochemistry of inflammation. And in doing this, we help avoid chronic disease, which is actually caused in part by this pro-inflammatory diet, which is common throughout, throughout our country. And so it's so important that we get that grass-fed or pastured animal meat in our diet.
0: Yeah, and that would go along with my the basic premise for what we do here at OFM, because I, I look at what were those evolutionary pressures that shaped us as humans, and, and anthropologically, when we migrated out into the savannah and followed the great ruminant herds as humans, you know, we were consuming them as a, our, our principal food source, and they were eating grass, and, and we basically evolved to the exact diet you're recommending.
1: Yes. I understand the Native Americans consumed over 50 different animals. (laughs) Yeah. And modern, you know, agricultural humans are eating, you know, maybe three to five. Uh, So we're not eating a very varied diet. That's another consequence of agriculture. Well, yeah. Uh, And and culturally,
0: culturally, uh, Americans, one thing I have... uh, one thing I have observed is culturally, Americans have a tough time moving away from muscle meat to organ meat and skin and connective tissue uh, foods.
1: Yes, that's another element, of course. Uh, something else I found in my studies was that pork, that unpo- unprocessed pork, let's say pork chops, that muscle meat of porks, a pork um, simply cooked causes a lot of agglutination in the blood, a lot of sticky red blood cells and high blood viscosity and people who ate like that in my study felt exhausted. In fact, one guy had to lie down. His blood was so congealed uh, about an hour after consuming... Again, this was grass-fed pork, or I should say pastured pork. It was the highest quality, but it was inappropriately prepared because it was not marinated. And end, that's a problem with pork in particular.
0: Yeah, now this is where, is. so the, the term you use is agglutinated because, you know, like I, I mistook it. It's the red blood cells, not the platelets, because I was thinking about platelet clumping. But it's, it's the agglutination, the clumping of these red blood cells. Is that correct?
1: Yes, the, blood cell, the red blood cells should be separated because they normally have a net negative charge. And in physics, like charges repel one another. But something happens after consuming this pork. In most people that I looked at, it makes extremely sticky red blood cells that that they're clumped together, even in strands that are very tight. They look like rolls of coins under the microscope, and we call them rouleaux, which is the French word for rolls. And this is not good because that blood cannot circulate in the tiniest microcapillaries, which feed all of our organs and tissues. And even the brain goes to sleep. People feel tired. They want to lie down. And they all, the people may feel this way after eating, and it probably means their blood has stuck together.
0: This is, this is fascinating stuff, and, and that maybe combined with a little bit of the tryptophan from the, the, mu- the muscle meat may, may be just like a, a, a perfect sedative, eh?
1: Yes, definitely. And um, we also found that marinated pork chop, for example, just very simple apple cider vinegar overnight marinade, not even garlic or salt or water, <laughs> uh, that kind of marinade and consumed by cooking marinated meat does not cause the red blood cells to stick together and It's interesting to note that um, that indigenous cultures always marinated their pork, always prepared pork in a special way, or they cured it as ham or bacon, and those are important processes to making pork. More palatable, more edible, and nourishing to us.
0: So, once again, as, as Stephen Finney says, you know, these native populations had figured things out uh, long before, you know, today's modern science had. <laughs> um, and uh, goes back to what we were talking about before we, we went live about how science has sort of been hijacked.
1: Yes, and it's so amazing that, you know, we're Homo sapien, <laughs> we call ourselves the, the wise ones but we don't know what to eat we're still struggling with it it seems when all the species know what they should eat but then i read a paper recently that surprised me it said domesticated farm animals if they're taken out of the pasture and put into these barns with food troughs they lose the ability to know which weeds not to eat in pasture they could in fact eat a toxic weed because they're so removed from nature uh, generation after generation So they too don't know what they should eat anymore. And that's what happened to humans. I think take us away from nature and we lose a lot of knowledge and
0: wisdom. Wow, that's that's, that's amazing. So, um, you know, one of the things that I I do with with the athletes we work with is what I call capillary conditioning, which is, you know, to get them on a, a, a properly formulated diet that's going to get them fat adapted. So they're back to physiologically burning fat, but... One of the things that that does is reduce the inflammation, and and then we start base cardio conditioning, is, and that's what I call car, capillary conditioning because it's exactly what you're talking about developing the biogenesis of those capillaries that are feeding you know everything every organ in your body your your muscles your genitalia your eyes. I, I always tell people the genitalia and the eyes are the canaries in the coal mine because they're fed by these capillaries, and as soon as they become inflamed and agglutinated blood is trying to push its way through there. You lose your eyesight. You lose the sensation you need for sexual arousal, and th- and that goes beyond ED in men. It it happens in women. They just you just can't. It's not as obvious, shall we say?
1: Hmm. I know that the right diet plus exercise will help people grow new blood vessels to the heart. I had a client. He was over 90, and he decided not to get a heart bypass. But he was working on exercising three to four hours a day and eating this good diet. Uh, And he was building new blood vessels to his own heart, bypassing the blocked ones.
0: Yeah, no, and that's, that's, that's amazing. But it also makes sense because you and I are probably old enough. I won't kiss and tell, Bev, but we're probably old enough to remember the time when they said, you know, brain cells couldn't be rejuvenated. And, you know, that's in the last 10 years, that's been... It's been proven that, that in the right conditions, brain cells can uh, be, be, you know, be produced.
1: Yes. Well, there was remarkable work by Dr. Marion Diamond, I know, at University of California, Berkeley, who some decades ago actually showed that old rats taught new tricks. Their brains grew in thickness. She was one of the first, and it was a remarkable finding because everybody thought you couldn't teach an old rat a new trick. (laughs) And wherever there's a brain, wherever there's life, there's a potential to grow and change. That's clear. But we have to um, eat right, we have to exercise, we have to stay active. Uh, We have to keep alive, keep our vitality going. And I would say in recent years, the vitality of our planet, of our species, of the biosphere is sinking, and we have to pay attention how to bring it back.
0: Yes, yes, yes. You, and you make that, and um, I don't want to get too off topic here, but that, it's interesting you mentioned a thing about the old rats and the the thickened brains, because there's going to be some papers published out of UC Davis, out of John Ramsey's lab, um, and one of the, the the uh, authors on the paper marita wallace is uh, working in craig bear's lab on muscle hypertrophy and this paper is actually going to show uh that when they put rats on a on a into a ketogenic diet when they're they're actually producing ketones which means they're burning fat as their principal fuel cell and i don't want to go to the extreme of being pro-keto not keto but just the idea that you're burning your fat as your primary fuel source, but those rats are actually living 20% longer. So heads up on that.
1: Yes, that's great to know.
0: Yeah. So back to the this agglutinated blood. So you saw this. So then the uncured, unmarinated pork, and we're talking about a long marination. Uh, what What would be the period of, of marination?
1: That was a 24-hour marinade.
0: Okay. Just so- overnight. But it's enough to penetrate into the, 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 the chop enough to where it, it, whatever. Yes. And so could you kind of maybe some, without, you know, um, selling your reputation as a PhD, could you kind of give your thoughts on, on what mechanisms you think are happening that, that causes agglutination in, in, in non-ruminant, uh, muscle meat and how the, the marinating and the curing, Changes that to, to cause our bodies, our blood to, you know, what kind of reaction is going when that passes, those proteins pass, in, pass the, the stomach and gut barrier into our bloodstream. Um,
1: you know, I tried to find in the literature, what is it in pork that may cause this? And I, I could not find it. So clearly there's some protein or peptide or some something that can be denatured by acidic marinades that is toxic to us and it's not surprising I would say there's no perfect food for example beans have lectins that aren't too good for us either and we soak beans to remove them or or we get gas and 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 we also get blood agglutination from eating uh, uncooked beans like lima beans so there is no perfect food Um, you know that's why we want to eat broadly and eat widely uh, and not eat the same thing over and over again.
0: Yeah, and not, uh, not eat all the time and not eat too much. Because, I mean, if you think about, I've had this kind of out there thought, but if you think about the whole process of eating and consuming and how the food gets digested, it's it's it's, it's kind of a violent process in, in and of itself, let alone, you know, uh, the slaughtering of animals or, you know, harvesting, et cetera.
1: Yeah, and I had a friend who was reputedly the oldest the most uh... the oldest man in north america he lived to a hundred eleven and i visited him in new york city and i have to say he didn't cook he didn't eat very much he was on a kind of caloric restriction and since his wife had passed away many years ago and he didn't want to get involved with food preparation he ordered one meal a day and uh... kind of divided it into two portions something like a burrito arrived <laughs> and that was um his daily intake. It certainly was very far below the average recommended calorie consumption uh, by our dietitians today. He lived to 111 and he didn't die of any diseases and he drank basically only water. And he had nothing in the cupboard. That was it. The one meal that he ordered out uh, that arrived each day. and uh, it, it really was quite mind-blowing to realize that we probably eat too much. That's another consequence of the plenitude of food all around us and making wrong choices as well.
0: Well, the plenitude and then also the fact that the more food we eat, the more business we're driving. Uh, yes. And, and as, you, as we were talking about, you know, a lot of the science has been hijacked by, you know, mon- monetary interests.
1: That's for sure. And it's really sad because, I mean, I grew up believing that fat was bad. We learned in school that it caused heart disease. We should not eat that saturated fat. For many decades, there were strange things like margarine that replaced butter, which were hydrogenated fats. We were told those were healthier, but really it was about selling um, a, product, a food product, which was actually highly unnatural, and decades later, we know that hydrogenated fats are uh, associated with trans fats, and those are very unhealthy and lead to all kinds of inflammatory conditions.
0: Well, yeah, and I think that 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 goes along because when you look at what they were making, say, the margarines and the Criscos out of, they were actually, and and then even like like fluoride and toothpaste, they were taking these waste products that they were, you know, acting like in the case of fluoride were toxic problems and turning them into a profit center because they took something that cost essentially nothing. Yeah. and, And they became very profitable things versus... Uh, something like butter or leaf lard or or well-refined tallow.
1: Yes, absolutely. And today I think one of the worst things is um, the high fructose corn syrup disguised under many names like cornstarch, et cetera, in processed foods that's leading to this epidemic in obesity and diabetes. That and also the high-carb diet in general, that's so much part of the standard American diet.
0: Yeah, no, it, it's 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 so true, and so let's let's. I want to keep on this whole agglutinated red blood cell thing because it really is. I'm, I'm I'm fascinated by what you're talking about because now it's starting to make sense in the context of the other things we're doing. Like I was saying about capillary biogenesis, but you know, um, so we found you found that that non-ruminant red meat, like in the, this case pork. Um, you know, if it was not marinated or not cured, it, it causes agglutination. And so, but you found universally that ruminant red meat did not do this?
1: Well, I didn't really study ruminant red meat per se. I was studying people on what we call the Weston A. Price Foundation diet compared to the the pretty conventional organic diet. Um, and again, people aren't eating the organ meats uh, so the Weston A. Price Group is eating organ meats, but it's hard to say to what degree. It might be small amounts. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I wasn't no. explicitly looking at the ruminant uh, red muscle meat versus organ meat. That was not part of my question.
0: Okay. Well, what, what, when I when I read your paper, you did have some people, the same people that were testing on the pork versus you know the marinated versus unmarinated and uncured. We're also eating lamb or something, too. You had some slides in there that were, they were yes, eating lamb.
1: Yes, that's true. We tested lamb as a comparison to see if it was uh, common to all muscle meat or not. And lamb is not a problem. It was not a problem for any of the subjects. There was no agglutination of blood following um, muscle lamb.
0: Hmm. And that that's interesting because all this thing you're saying about getting tired and all, I've noticed that if I eat a moderate amount of, Red meat, meaning uh, usually it's it's beef, because that's the most common and cheapest. Um, I actually, and, and just have some vegetables like you know steamed asparagus with butter. I actually don't feel tired, and I actually feel kind of energized.
1: That sounds like a good uh, portion: vegetables and red meat. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, but it was you know it's ruminant red meat, and and um, so it's kind of interesting. So, um. What, and Did you ever t- test uh, poultry at all? Have you ever done any tests on poultry?
1: No, I haven't. Um, I know how people feel after the Thanksgiving turkey dinner, and they feel pretty tired, most people, but I think it has to do with the high carb and high low vegetable consumption of Thanksgiving meals in general. Lots of potatoes and stuffing, and um, but a few really untampered with vegetables, <laughs> some cooked with a lot of um, fat etc and the antidote to that fatigue after thanksgiving dinner would be um, some alkalinizing vegetable juice people will bounce back feel energized as Hmm. they restore their ph
0: yeah so so this is leading to some very interesting thoughts on my part um but it could also mean that you know between the tryptophan and the turkey, and then maybe if the poultry does cause some level of agglutination, the whole combination is just you know sort of a recipe for for that exhausted feeling.
1: It would you know? be worth looking at yeah. the poultry and the different types of poultry. Yeah, um, and of course, and and how were what kind of food did the poultry consume again? was it corn and soy or were they free range really free range not the 15 minutes used to define free range in the american department of agriculture (laughs) the 15 minutes that chickens get outside of the
0: coop yeah that's interesting so let's let's kind of delve into what your next uh the next paper i saw in the western price journal was um you were looking at this uh agglutination of red blood cells um, mainly in terms of cell phones, but I'm sure it extends to other non emf sources when you're getting close to them.
1: Yes, let me say some words as a precursor to this. You know, the Weston A. Price Diet, the first study that I did was when cell phones were basically just emerging. Uh, the, the smartphone came out in 2007, and my study was conducted in 2008 and 9. So not many people had smartphones, and I noticed how really good the blood looked of the Weston A. Price uh, food eaters. Then, about 10 years later, I did a study on cell phone radiation and the blood. I had people come without using their cell phones for about four hours, and then I took baseline, but already the blood did not look as good as it did almost 10 years ago. What's going on? Well, we have a lot of exposures to cell phone towers, to cell phone radiation of others, as well as our own second-hand, so to speak, like second-hand smoke. We have a bunch of wireless uh, technology devices in our lives, from our computers to tablets to uh, people have keyboards and mice that may also be emitting. So we have a huge number of wireless devices in our environment that are now emitting and affecting our blood. And so the blood has basically deteriorated in general since 10 years ago when Though there were very few of those devices in our environment. Wow,
0: that's 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 stunning. And and you know, there's a lot of people talking about non-native EMF and its effect. But you know, you're seeing it pretty clearly in these slides. And and I don't know if you've done any um, studies that were published in any journals beyond Weston Price or, or or planning to, but uh, you know. The, the images I saw and what you wrote were just pretty stunning to me as far as how agglutinated the blood gets.
1: Yeah, let me, let me summarize the results. Uh, so in the study, I had people come in. I took a baseline blood test. It had to look pretty good before we started. Otherwise, they could not be part of the study uh, so that I might be able to see changes if the radiation were disturbing the blood as I expected it might. And so, after 45 minutes of just wearing a smartphone in a backpack, the phone was turned on, ready to receive a call or a text, but it did not ring during the course of the 45 minutes. Then I took another blood test, and lo and behold, the blood had become sticky. The red blood cells were sticking together in almost all subjects, but in particular, subjects who were 50 years old and up. And then, 45 minutes later of cell phone use, active use, holding the cell phone in one hand and using it to go online, etc., with the other hand, with two five-minute phone calls holding the phone near the head, uh, but not necessarily on the ear, that produced even further degradation of the blood. So the blood got sticky the first time around, and then the cells became misshapen and somewhat spiky. And we call those spiky red blood cells echinocytes. They're spiky like a sea urchin, which is a spiky animal. So those kind of changes, the spiky red blood cells, I think are not so reversible as the sticky red blood cells. So this concerns me because spiky red blood cells, again, cannot travel through the tiniest microcapillaries. They would get held back. So that means a lot of microcirculation would be compromised just using a cell phone for 45 minutes, as as one might in an airport or in certain jobs. People are constantly hanging out of their phones. And people are often wearing their phones on their bodies, turned on, ready to receive a call, in their pockets, uh, in their bras. Um, This is not a good thing, and if you read the manual for cell phones, which doesn't really uh, come as a paper manual, but it's tucked away on your settings, inside the smartphone it says not to touch the phone to your body keep it at least half an inch away but nobody respects that many people uh... hold the phone, tuck it in their pockets and seem oblivious to the fact that it's an active emitter, it's not like a radio or uh... other appliance that from the past
0: wow so um... And this would extend to other non-native EMF, like microwave ovens, um, your Wi-Fi in your house. To, all these to a probably a lesser degree because it's, you, know, you don't have that radio transmitter tucked right up against you. Um,
1: well, not yet, but the Internet of Things, the IoT is coming. And uh, with devices like smart meters, which uh, may be hanging on your house, uh, already informing the power companies when you have power on and off by sending big spikes of radio waves uh, and communicating with your smart devices. Not so really smart, in my opinion. Um, we're going to get more and more exposure to these frequencies, and as we replace the older appliances, just about everything will be blepping and blaring these microwave frequencies. And its uh, They're very sharp frequencies. If you look at them with a very good Electronic meters we have in our lab. It isn't the average value of energy so much as the digital peaks that are profoundly high and then they turn off. This is extremely jarring to life forms, and especially to us. And that's what's happening with all of these digital wireless communication devices.
0: And so the red blood cells are sort of once again that canary in the coal mine. It's very it's very evident when they're exposed to these, these sharp, um, non-native EMF things. And, and, and as I say, we really are robust. So the occasional hit of this isn't, isn't, uh, as dangerous as the chronic exposure. And like you say, you go from agglutination to the spiky sea urchin forms, you eventually hit a threshold where there's sort of a, a large percentage. There's no return.
1: Yes. And, um, I looked more deeply into the reasons why red blood cells might be becoming misshapen, which is the second phase of the reaction, the spiky cells and uh, less than round. They get very distorted looking and discovered that microwave radiation from cell phones and other appliances um, causes the voltage-gated calcium channel. There are channels on the membrane that allow certain ions to get in and out of the cells, that exclude ions and let other ions pass, ions such as sodium, potassium, calcium. Well, as it turns out, these microwaves open up those channels and allow calcium to rush into the cell. Now, calcium is an important regulator of cellular function in just about every cell type. So, not only are there changes in the membrane and the shape of the cells, but we could expect changes in the biochemistry across the entire body of our cells if the voltage-gated calcium channels are disturbed by this radiation. So if the changes in our bodies may be much bigger than just the blood. I just happen to look at blood because it's a very convenient tissue.
0: Yeah, well, and as all things that I'm learning, you know, in terms of biological systems, you know, you start to understand learn about one rabbit hole you've gone down, and, and all of a sudden you find... A bunch of intersections which which leads you down all these other different rabbit holes, and it's it's wonderful and it's a never ending thing but but like with people like you and myself and like my wife and her work, you never can give these definitive black and white answers that a lot of the the pseudoscience scientist type people on in the media and on the internet who who can give these overarching defining statements that people like to hear. Um, give. I mean, because it's like, it's a fascinating journey because it's just, there's so much to learn.
1: Yes. And I would say a lot of, a lot of people say, well, if they were dangerous, they wouldn't be sold. And because the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration and the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission approves them, they must be safe. But that, that's illogical. First of all, we've had cigarettes that were FDA approved and thought to be even healthy back in the 1940s. And now we know those things cause cancer, lung cancer in particular, but other cancers too. And there actually is no safety standard for cell phone radiation. We only have guidelines. And we have seven billion, let me repeat, billion, cell phones on Earth. And about half of them are being used by children who have extremely thin skulls. So a lot of this is getting in their brains and disrupting their brains. And they say it takes about 20 to 30 minutes for children to recover after they make a cell phone call where they hold the phone to their head. But many children are doing this, not just in our country and worldwide. And so it's not just disrupting blood, but brain. And that is a very serious thing in developing brains, such as children. And I really worry about it because we don't have an answer. We're all being experimented on. And they're increasing the bandwidth of these cell phones uh, starting later In 2017, they're rolling out the fifth generation, which will have even more high frequency radiation that will be even more disruptive to our bodies.
0: Yeah, these things are very powerful devices at this point. And and this brings me to the thing I'm going to, since I don't have the PhD, I do have a BS in biology from UC Davis, but I don't have a PhD, a master's or an MD. So I can say the things you can't. Um, it brings, what you mentioned, this reminds me of my good friend, John Mahoney, who we've had on the podcast and John, John, he says in retrospect, all the signs were there, but John is five years out from an angiocytoma, a brain, you know, very aggressive form of brain cancer that, um, has a less than 2% survival rate three years out. And, you know, he was on a high carb diet, um, living his lifestyle in retrospect was very poor and he, and he had a, a cell phone glued to his ear all, almost all the time.
1: Yeah. That's very depressing to hear. Yeah. And we do have a higher incidence of brain cancer and the world health organization has actually called cell phone radiation, uh, a carcinogen. It's out there.
0: Well, yeah. And that's the thing is like, you know, a crappy diet, a lot of EMF because one of the things that that a high carb diet, especially a high carb low fat diet, does is is, and I've seen some data, unpublished data on this, is is the cell membrane fatty acid compositional profiles are are are, are not optimal, and might even go so far as to say um, compromised, and, and so, you know, this combined with radiation could really lead to some, you know. Interesting unintended consequences, shall we say?
1: Yes. Let me say that I've unofficially and unp- unpublished looked at case studies of people who are vegans. And, you know, they're not eating any animal fat whatsoever or animal meat and, and no animal products. Their cells are very weak in the sense that their red blood cells do not stay on the microscope stage very long. They're subject to oxidation, and they go pop like balloons right in front of my eyes. Wow. Similar to Similar to smokers. Smoker's blood, too, because they have 3,000 toxic chemicals in their blood due to tobacco smoke. They have a lot of free radical reactions, and their red blood cells also pop right in front of my eyes. In about two hours, there are no more red blood cells on the slide. Whereas people eating the very high-fat diet of Weston A. Price um, recommended show such sturdiness in their red blood cells that 24 hours later those cells remain on the slide maybe a little bit wrinkled what we call crenated from dehydration but the cells are sturdy and again that's a sign of a very strong constitution of a good biological terrain and uh, people eating less fat the weaker their cells look because the red blood cell membrane, as many blood cell membranes, many cell membranes um, require cholesterol. And yes, we make it, but we also should be taking it in the diet.
0: Yeah, because it is the build, building blocks. And if you give those the liver the building blocks for making cholesterol from cholesterol-rich foods, um, it'll make very robust cholesterol. And if you know, some of the work we're doing with ultra-endurance athletes and my friend Dave Feldman, who's actually taken rigorous data on himself, it's an N equals one, but the gentleman is controlling variables like like the best PhD I've ever seen on himself. He just has to get his um, uh, cohort size beyond N equals one, but... I've seen the same exact trends in, in ultra-riders. We start to see higher cholesterols, low triglycerides. But interestingly enough, we see higher LDLs, including VLDLs, but these people feel on top of the world. And their performance does, because I think the whole cholesterol paradigm has been hijacked uh, in much the same way as the high-carbohydrate, low-fat diet paradigm was created. And... Um, you know when you when you have your your metabolism set to to metabolize fat not just for energy but for all the things that you know lipoproteins fats cholesterols do to make a healthy body um, the cholesterol picture is a very different picture than than what we've been taught to think is healthy which which really isn't
1: Yes, I fully agree with you. And let's talk a bit a minute about how do they decide what is normal level in medicine. You know, they measure a lot of people who don't have any known diseases, a large number. And then they cut off 5% at the bottom and 5% at the top. So basically they have 90%. And whatever that range is, that's considered normal, healthy. But it may, may not be optimum because our diets have been so far astray uh, in this culture for so many decades that I don't think we really know what optimum is. And you've hit the nail on the head when you're looking at this subpopulation or even a few individuals. So we have high-level wellness, um, high output as athletes, and are eating a very different diet. We need to explore high-level wellness and probably reestablish what is is normal healthy and what is high-level wellness. Because I don't think we have those values down in um, in healthcare.
0: Yeah, I d I don't think we do either. And I, you know, and like, like I you know, as a Western Price member, I'm I'm a big believer in, in the work of Weston Price and, and some of the basic tenets. but you know, I see like like for me the Weston A Price diet is is actually pretty much looks like the diet that I advise my athletes to consume once they've made that transi- transition from being a carboholic to being fat adapted, which means some pretty sharp Calorie uh, carbohydrate restriction for a small period of time to to get that physiological shift in place, and, right? Um, but the the difference is, is the activity level, um, and and what I've seen is like you know when I go to the Western A Price conventions and stuff, there's a lot of overweight Western A Price members because they're eating all these great fats, but because they are also eating a lot of carbohydrates, and if people understood you know human glucose control, they'll realize that real quickly that if you're ingesting a lot of carbohydrates, which your body sees as glucose, um, it basically has to do something with it very quickly. Or, or, you know, as in the case of a type one diabetic who doesn't titrate himself, you've got some serious problems.
1: Yes, that's right. And people don't realize that a high fat diet will not make you fat. They're afraid of fat
0: yes well it's it's a little more you know in the sphere I'm working in it's it's kind of funny because a lot of the people who have gone to ketogenic type diets and high super high fat low carb they will they will tend to gain weight if they're taking in too many calories but it it's a more of a slow gradual gain the way i I've simplified it is is when you're fat when you're burning fat it's meta it's calories in equals metabolic calories out. If you're taking in too many calories, you're going to put on a little weight. The, the the corollary is, if you're a carb person, it's calories cubed in equals metabolic calories times calories stored times calories glycated. Um, yes. And, and so I think that you know it's 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 a it's a very um, a lot of gray areas and nuances there, and, and a lot of, and certainly individualization. Um, and so, you know, the key is to be able to metabolize fat and, and then, and do this, but I want to go back to these, do, do you see the same, you know, how you were saying how the vegan and smokers and Steve Finney mentioned this once that, that smokers, you know, have a lot of oxidative stress, which basically is what you said. Um, but do you also see this same phenomenon in, in these clumped red blood cells when they've gone spiky on you?
1: Well, I do see spiky red blood cells in smokers sometimes, but frequently the cells don't last long enough to get to that. Spiky well, stage. what I'm
0: asking is, do those spiky cells say a Western A price member who gets exposed to cell phone radiation? Do those spiky cells um, just stay spiky, or do they also pop, or they don't pop just because well, they're, they're more robust? I only
1: st- studied them up for about up to an hour and a half, and during that time they didn't pop
0: but that doesn't
1: mean they don't pop later. Uh, What I didn't find, and what we were looking for in that study on cell phone radiation, we thought there might be a protective effect from the Weston A. Price diet, but as it turns out we didn't find that. In other words, I was looking at people eating different percentages of the Weston A. Price diet. I had some pretty much 95 percent and up, and others just getting started, maybe 10 to 20 percent, and I compared them. I looked for across the board, was there a protective effect for those who ate almost consistently the Weston A. Price diet for many years? I did not find a protective effect. The, ef- the effects on blood seem to link with age. In other words, young people did not have such dramatic blood responses to cell phone radiation. And I'm not sure whether this may be because young people use, their, use these devices more. Are they already uh, accommodated somehow? Have they gotten used to the radiation? Or are they just younger and more resilient than people over 50? And I didn't have enough subjects in the study to really determine the answer to that question, but it would be worth knowing whether there's an adaptation. If people uh, use cell phones over time, uh, does does their body, do they adapt to the extent where blood um, returns to a better baseline despite their uh, thwarting it all the time with cell phone radiation. That's not clear.
0: Hmm. Um, and were the, the subjects you, you used, were they subjects, were they, were they fairly active and on the Western price uh, diet or were they relatively sedentary? I'm sure they were active, meaning they were outdoors and they were working, but were, were any of them athletes? Um, cause one of the things we see is, is a lot of people, uh, who get on board with our program, you know, the combination of being fat adapted and and a diet that, like I said, is our OFM diet really is very close to what a Western A price diet is. Once you're, you're adapted because we do make strategic use of concentrated carbohydrates. I'm just wondering if what they say, a lot of people comment of is they call it a reverse aging diet because many of my athletes are in their forties, fifties and sixties and even seventies.
1: You know, my subject, uh, my sample was only, what, 10 or 12. I didn't have enough, really, to make a statement about the role of activity or exercise. But the, all those are great questions, and I hope that someone conducts a larger study, or I wish I could find the funding to conduct a larger study myself and include sub questions like that. Um, and especially as the fifth generation of these smartphones gets rolled out uh later in two thousand seventeen
0: okay, so this I think this brings us to a point in the in the podcast like like let's let's start you know we've been talking about the issues and the challenges and all that. Let's talk about solutions um you know we we can't really go back to our hunter gather existence and and lose our cell phones so easily so what Bev, would you suggest, let's start with the the technology side of things. How do we coexist with our technologies yet um, try to mitigate the downside and take advantage of the, the convenience and the connectivity that we have? Because, I mean, let's face it, right now we're doing this interview. I'm in Park City, Utah, where I'm meeting people and giving talks and you're uh, in Emeryville and... and, and that's a great thing because we're, it allows us to get this information out. I mean, we've got to face yeah. that side, but, you know, at the same time, be aware of the downsides. And, and so for our audience, what are practical ways you suggest to uh, mitigate these downside things that, you, that you're seeing that, that actually are, are, are much more insidious and, and potentially much more harmful than the public has led to been led to believe?
1: Yeah, I think one of the things we can do is, and lots of people don't want to hear this, but it's called prudent avoidance. Let me tell you how I do things. I don't have Wi-Fi at my lavatory or in my home. I have the old-fashioned cord DSL, Ethernet cord, because I'm not running around my computer around the house. I have a workstation, and everything's plugged in. And there's really no need for a wireless keyboard or a wireless mouse. When you're at a workstation, everything can be plugged in, and you're avoiding, then, a certain amount of Wi-Fi. The other thing is you could do your email on that computer that's wired instead of your cell phone that has Wi-Fi, unless you really need to on a certain day. So um, holding the phone away from the body or putting it on the desk while you talk, uh, having earbuds... um, All of these are precautionary things that take the phone a little further from your body because over distance, the energy of the phone drops precipitously as uh, one over the inverse square of the distance. So just a few inches from the body is a great improvement in our exposure levels. And so we just have to think about it. We don't want to hold the phone on our ear. We don't want to wear the phone in our pocket or in a purse uh, on our bodies. We want it a few feet away, if possible, especially when it's not in use. And you could also turn it on airplane mode when you're playing games so that it's not actively communicating with the cell phone tower. There's a lot of things we can do. And I'm also looking at protective devices, but I don't have all the data in yet. There are all kinds of special cases and stickers to put on your cell phone that may, may or may not be helpful in mitigating the radiation dose but that data is not fully in yet, so I won't go there. But yeah. I think it's possible to mitigate the exposure and to keep using our cell phones. But we have to think about it as an active thing. It's so, not passive.
0: So how do, you, how do you use a cell phone in your daily life? Because, I mean, you, you've already described how you're using your computer and, your, and that you've just basically eliminated Wi-Fi in the house by, by hardwiring all your, your, your workstation
1: right I, I use it on speakerphone a good deal or I have uh, the earbuds make it much better uh, the re, the it's easier to hear when you have it on speakerphone for both parties because uh, when you have the earbuds plugged in uh, the microphone is much better the speakers work better I use I so, use,
0: I use earbuds for exactly the reason you know you've outline, but I was just thinking right. if there's other tricks. And I think some of these devices that, that are supposed to mitigate, they may mitigate to a certain extent, but it's, it's kind of hard for me to wrap my head around how do you mitigate the EMF when that's basically a radio transceiver and you have to get these frequencies, these, these radio yeah. waves in and out of the unit.
1: <laughs> yeah, it will always be active as long as you're communicating. There's no way to turn off the radiation if you want your phone to work. But if you're playing a game and it's something you've downloaded, then there's no reason to have it actively communicating. And then to put your phone on airplane mode, which makes it not communicate and safe to play games on.
0: Yeah, and at night, putting it on airplane mode can can help reduce that.
1: Right. And then not leaving it near your bed at night. Lots of people put these things on their headboard or their night table right near them. But um, put it somewhere else in the house. Put it near your briefcase, ready to go to work somewhere far from the bedroom. So think about your daily exposure, your desk and your bedroom. Those are two places where you may spend uh, 16 hours a day uh, or so. And think about minimizing your exposure in those two places.
0: Well, what about, okay, so what about other things? Because, you know, you've got your microwaves. Um, you want to be away from those, I would assume. Yes,
1: yes. Well, I hope you're not microwaving your food because not only is that uh, ruining your nutrition, the vitamins and minerals, because of superheating, uh, even microwaving water to heat it up, a cup of water to make tea or so, it loses its vitality. Uh, Seeds do not sprout very well in water that is when placed in a microwave oven. So people shouldn't use microwave appliances, in my opinion. They should go back to the old-fashioned way of heating water and cooking Slow cooked food.
0: So you do, you do not use a microwave as a daily routine of not at all. Okay. No. Fair enough. Uh, I think one thing we forgot to mention that's sort of u- becoming ubiquitous in our envi- in our you know our daily modern environment, is the RFID chips. So many, uh, so many um, things we interact with which we don't think of as. You know, wireless technology have these RFID chips in it. Especially now, cars are using RFID chips. Pretty, I mean, all over the the cars because of all the the quote unquote convenience. Um, and, and it, in and it, by using RFID chips, it lowers the labor cost of assembly. Uh, are you aware of this?
1: Yes, but I think the RFID chip is kind of passive. It's not emitting. Is that
0: isn't that so? Not not entirely a lot of these chips now are, are, are actually see like like in the assembly of a car they can use these RFID chips to transmit low-level rays between things like say the speakers in the back instead of having to now route instead of the old way of routing wires from the radio back they can just you know, they have these RFID chips you know glued to the, the speakers and you know the 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 automatic trunk or 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 tail lid, or a lot of these things. They're they're doing away with harness assemblies, the long harness assemblies. You know, of course, they've got to still wire the electricity to it. But there's there's a lot of this kind of technology going into all kinds of uh, different, you know, uh, conventional devices.
1: Yes, this is uh, broadly referred to as the Internet of Things, yeah. and cars are full of. Well, they also have computers and. Yep and are emitting, you know, I've measured them. Go in a car with uh, a radio frequency meter and look at the pollution there. And we have to think about all of our appliances. Any new appliance that you get that's going to talk to your smart meter or talk to one another is already an emitter. So that even the usual electrical appliance that maybe would only bother us by the 60 hertz frequency, the power line frequency, now has wireless radiation coming out of it. And again, we don't, we're not aware of this, but keep it away from your desk and your bed. And I, that includes these decked phones, these digital phones that are cordless, that are so common in the homes. They're actually worse emitters than your
0: smartphones. Wow. So, and then as far as uh, the diet with the, with the meats and stuff like that, what kind of advice can you give there?
1: Well, I think um, I like to grow my own vegetables and to have chickens. I have a hobby farm and it's really a pleasure to grow and eat what's in season. Then you really understand what's going to nourish you best at at, at this particular time and the, the cycle of earth. Um, otherwise, you don't know what's in season. People are out of touch and they'll buy watermelon shipped up in December from South America. But that's not a food that nourishes us at the right time. So, We need to eat sturdy greens and and citrus in spring, cleaning the liver. These bitter greens are particularly good. Uh, We need to eat at least a good healthy serving of a meat protein a day. I say something the size of the palm of your hand, a serving at least that large to replenish and rebuild our bodies, and especially the blood. Millions of blood cells are getting rebuilt every day, while others are taken out of circulation. And in four months, you have an entirely new blood supply. So we're constantly turning over protein, and we must replenish uh, with good quality animal protein from those pastured animals, including the organ meats because of the wonderful vitamin content.
0: Well, yeah, and the fact that they balance, you know, the nutritional content of organ meats and the skin and connective tissue and bone marrow. Yes. Um, they balance out what's in the the the, the muscle meat, and it, it sort of you know it gives you that the truly balanced, nutrient-dense, bioavailable diet.
1: And something else, uh, again, don't throw it out. The bones and skin and the parts you didn't eat make broth. Very nourishing. I eat this, I drink broth daily or make it into soups and sauces. And it's especially recommended for the elderly. In fact, it was a component of Chinese medicine. They started with bone broth and they added herbs. And that's what they're giving the elderly. To well,
0: them. Yeah, and, and like I have my my kids, I have some young kids, five, four, and twenty one months, and at least once a month we go out for menudo compata sin grano. Do you know what that is?
1: No, what is that?
0: Menudo. menudo is tripe soup. It's a Mexican oh. Central American tripe soup and, and compata is they put the hoof in it. Oh and it's it's, yeah. it's it's food of the gods. It's considered a hangover remedy and you you put in cilantro and onions and lemon juice and it's my, my kids are I've raised them on it and so we they, they love it and they, so they ask for it and' um, Wonderful. It's, it's just this rich gelatinous um, mix of, of tripe and, 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 and hoof and, and it's just it's just you know wonderfully rich and and where do you where do you have your farm? If you're working in Emoryville, there's not a lot of, of uh, rural space there.
1: Well, I'm, I live in the Oakland Hills and okay. then I have about a quarter acre of a hillside and my chickens are pretty much at the bottom and they okay. come up and tap their beaks on the door. They're definitely free range <laughs> yep. and they're, they're kind of hiding from the hawks and falcons uh, under the orchard trees so that they really can't be seen from um, prey. So they're safe and then they go in at night. We just lock the coop door. Uh, they're out all day, and they really love it. And their eggs are phenomenal. And they're seven-year-old chickens already.
0: Wow! And, and of course, they're getting lots of grubs and and yes. you know all the kinds of things that people who want the best, like I tell people, if you if you want to get the very best eggs, you don't want to know what those chickens are eating.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the yolks are orange like the setting sun. You can't buy eggs with rich yolks like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that's that so, sounds like you have really created a, a life for yourself.
1: Well, I enjoy it, and that's part of my exercise routine is going up and down that hill and doing gardening, always putting in some annuals and uh, cleaning up weeds, etc., and uh, dealing with the worm bins for the chickens, and, you know, it's very enjoyable, it's, it's very it's very healthy to do, and you're getting fresh air and sun and grounding, you're, getting, you're touching the bare earth and getting the electrons off the earth, which I think is also helpful against these radiations, a, a phenomenon called earthing. Because people are so separated from the Earth that these radiations could debilitate them further without this grounding process.
0: Well, that makes really a lot of sense because of the fact that we're so exposed to this non-native uh, electromagnetic radiation. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Well, super, Bev. thank you very much for, for a wonderful, informative presentation. Uh, uh, time with us and and giving you know not only the challenges and 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 showing how you're seeing them under the microscope but also offering solutions and and also living those solutions in your own life you know and that's that's you know it's it's great to talk about this but when you're actually living it, it it gives a a wonderful uh you know live by example don't you know like the old saying don't do as i don't do as i say not as i do you're you're doing both
1: Thank you, yes. I think that's very important that, you know, in order to really understand nature, we need to immerse ourselves in it. And then we become creatures of nature. And then it becomes more intuitive how we should take care of ourselves. Because we've been so separated from nature for so long. So get back in nature and watch your intuition tell you what to eat and what not to eat.
0: Well, thanks very much. Thank you. You are listening to Food for Thought, the OFM podcast,
1: sponsored by Vespa.